So for the first episode, I covered a famously large book with confusing undertones, and my second episode covered an oft-forgotten children's book. And now, for my third oration, I'm going to cover my, all my bases and cover a comic book. Now, co comic books are an interesting thing, especially in this age of comic book superheroes being our de facto cultural mythology. At least, that's what the corporations who paid a pretty penny for the copyrights would like. I have no problems with superheroes, but the genre never did much for me, so I never really got into them. I am a human with a pulse, so I enjoy Batman. I have a close friend who loves Spider-Man, so naturally I dislike Spider-Man to bug him. I think original Hawkman and Hawkgirl are neat because of how they are a reincarnated Egyptian lovers fighting the same cosmic battle throughout time, and I think subsequent Hawkman and Hawkgirl iterations are soul-crushingly lame. My favorite superhero proper is Thor, especially the Walt Simonson run of the 1980s that turned the Norse myth aspect of his character and worlds up to 11. But is he truly a superhero, or is he a sword and sorcery brawler in a superhero universe? It's the humans with powers that put me off. I can't identify. I like a regular dude or dudette overcoming impossible odds with a mix of strength, faith, and skill. Or a god smashing things with, things with the fury and justice of old. Look, I'm a barbarian at heart. My podcast is called Lion Skin. I long for mist-shrouded mountains wearing sheepskins and may or may not keep a basilard under my pillow in defiance of sudden foes. I have my tastes. All this is to say, I appreciate the superhero genre. I know what comics are known for, and it's superheroes. I acknowledge people enjoy them, and I have no criticisms of such enjoyments, except for my personal tastes. And out of respect for the genre, I find the comics that are, what if Superman killed people with his laser eyes, even more insulting for their defacement of a beloved genre. I dislike different genres, offbeat styles, off-the-wall comics, and graphic novels are so far off the wall that the wall was never there to begin with. Case in point, the subject of today's chat, The Indomitable Mouse Guard by David Peterson. A brief summary of Mouse Guard is this. Storybook mice engage in medieval battles and political intrigue. David has won many honors and awards for this series, but foremost among them is he's the first author covered on this podcast that is still alive. He's on Instagram and he seems like a nice guy. I've never talked to him. And in honor of him and that and the book status as an ongoing series, he is working on a sequel. I am only going to talk in detail about the attention-grabbing action sequence in the beginning. Although spoilers never truly bothered me and they should not bother you, our society worships mass media and spoilers are our mortal sin. It's a tad silly. But first, comics. I like the medium. It's one of the oldest styles of storytelling around. I was a cartoonist in college, and I appreciate the art of it immensely. It's the art I really care about. I still cartoon regularly. Purchasing-wise, I never got into collecting the floppies. Four dollars for a ten-minute read. I just couldn't endure it. Never agreed with me. I prefer to save my money and buy miniatures that I'll never paint. Instead, I buy the omnibuses and big volumes that catch my eye. I did collect Star Wars comics for a while, but then something happened to Star Wars around 2017 time that stopped that. Yep, one of those. The best definition for comics in my comics library is dappled. Oddities, weird books, and historical time periods, unique art styles, that sort of thing. Probably would make a dedicated collector cry, but if the comics don't kill me, I'll live till I die. 
And so we return to Mouse Guard. At its car, at its car, at its core, turned Irish there. It's my, it's my Hibernian speech impediment coming out there. At its core, it's a fantasy adventure series consisting of three volumes with a fourth promised on the way. I'm waiting, David. The volumes, in order, are Fall 1152, Winter 1152, a prequel called The Black Axe, and a collection of small stories called Baldwin the Brave and other stories. That's the official reading order, although Baldwin the Brave could work as an intro to the series. Then Peterson commissioned various other comics creators to create and illustrate their own tales for anthologies called Legends of the Guard, volumes one for three. Those are not central to the storyline, neither is Baldwin the Brave, but it sets a good tone for the world. If you can handle it, the rest of the series is for you. The plot is generally this. There's a mouse war, followed by a particularly harsh winter, and an aging hero goes on really a remembrance quest on his days as a young wandering hero with a really big axe. In the world of Mouse Guard, you take the basic fantasy lineup of humans, dragons, ogres, and other monsters, and swap them out with mice and other large critters. Mice being a substitute for humans because they are the perpetual underdogs, and let's be honest, they have hands, and when on their back legs they look pretty manlike. Having fur is analogous to being human or human-like. Mammals are civilized, essentially. And here we talk about the very best thing about Mouse Guard, the art. It's drawn in a beautiful watercolor storybook style. Think Arthur Rackham, yeah, think Arthur Rackham, a smudge of Art Nouveau, some Scottish arts and craft, and a bit of folk art, and some medieval illumination. Passeriform birds substitute for horses. Probably my favorite artwork of this series is a substitute of St. George and the Dragon, I assume and hope, and only George is a mouse riding a house sparrow, and the dragon is a snake. That's the general flow of the whole thing. Characters are nice, dare I say cute, round-shaped, not creepy eyes, and a general fuzzy look. And this is juxtaposed with the fact they are armed to the teeth and most are battle-scarred. I will admit, my tastes are a bit warped. I enjoy violent comedy, the juxtaposition of said violence into settings that are normally not violent, and I find absurdism funny. And I find it very funny indeed when absurdism is treated as something dead serious. Throw in some, but not too much, reference humor and thicken the broth with a slurry of adhering to an overarching theme, and that is a recipe for a grand comedic stew. I'm not a big fan of pop cultural reference humor. It tells the audience, hey, I know this is funny. You should laugh because I said so. Of course, it's funny if you understand the reference, but it's not funny if you don't. SpongeBob turning Bikini Bottom into the Road Warrior because they ran out of Krabby Patties is funny, but only because I know what the Road Warrior is. Same goes for Open Season slapping a Braveheart reference in there because the parents would get it. A pinch of reference humor is funny, but basing your entire sense of humor or comedy style on it makes your work flat and dated. And also, Maybe you've referenced another actor besides Mel Gibson in your kids' shows. So, when cute woodland mice are battling giant crabs, crabs being treated as some sort of ogre, and it's treated with something serious and not a joke, I am entertained and a happy reader. When it's only weird that when you notice the weirdness when you take a step back and realize what's going on, that's when you take in the final aroma of the cauldron. Delving into this mix of themes, mice have medieval cities inside tree stumps and other natural features, 
and set up fragile economies in trade between them as they are consistently preyed upon by the predators of this unnamed temperate woodland in which they live. The world is set up almost like a post-apocalypse, but avoids that genre by conveying that it's not post-apocalyptic, because mouse civilization never got advanced in the first place. It's always been an agrarian, fortress-based society. The first mouse we see is, a, is bringing a cart of grain to the market. Is he a farmer? Hunter-gatherer? It's not said. He's just a grain mouse. The plot follows three members of the Mouse Guard, the Mouse Highway Patrol, warriors who have jurisdiction outside the cities and slay monsters like snakes and crabs in the name of the sanctity of mouse life. They are called in to investigate the gray mouse who has gone missing. By the way, sanctity of mouse life is a direct quote. Here is the main cut of the series. Small underpowered heroes fighting much larger enemies and winning. It is the epitome of the everyman character, a character that is simple, easy to identify with, and so the reader can feel comfortable experiencing a very strange and uncomfortable world with them. All the mice in the story are everymen. There's varying degrees of fanciful things going on about them, that they're the most recognizably human creatures we meet, until we meet barbarian weasels much later in the series. They are fun adventure movie protagonists, and color-coded. We have Kenzie, the level-headed leader who wields a wizard staff and has a purple cape. It's unclear whether magic exists here, but Kenzie does some wizardly things with his staff, so it's a resounding maybe. Then there's Saxon, who wears a red cloak and is an aggressive swords mouse. In all words, describing a job that ended in man, Peterson swaps out man for mouse. He and Kenzie are buds, but they butt heads over how to best do their jobs. Saxon is a loose cannon. Then there's Liam, who wears green and carries a short sword. He's the new recruit who wants to prove himself. So, you know, very common characters going on. It's fun to see these stock characters appear as mice. The whole thing is an 80s action movie slash buddy comedy, and that is part of the charm. The snake appears in all of its glory, and it's clear that it's supposed to be a dragon. The mice work together to bring down such a threat, and the day is ultimately saved by Liam, who lets the snake eat him, but cuts his way out of it, killing the beast. Then they find the missing mouse inside the snake and confirm that he's dead. But Kenzie reveals that he's found evidence that he's a spy. He was carrying top secret information to his spy master. Thus, the adventures begin as the mice must unravel the mystery who is trying to overthrow the mouse cities. Does it break new ground? No. It's still good, though. Being infatuated with new and improved leads to sadness as you munch on experimental stuff and pretend it's enjoyable. You can eat overpriced gourmet all you can, but you'll be happier with a nice double cheeseburger with cheddar cheese and a side of fries, which is what Mouse Guard is. Its storytelling is also a fine way to do comics. Short, small dialogue boxes. The main display is the art. It doesn't bog down in wordy world building as some fantasy genres, Lord of the Rings and his sons, does, but it doesn't really need that. You get a sense of history in seeing scars, notches on swords and ears, and battered architecture. Dialogue is terse, short and snappy, and the action is neither rushed nor drawn out. It does have some blood, but it's not a gore fest. There's no shortage of violence, but nothing is mangled on. At least, nothing is drawn mangled. The most disturbing stuff for me is seeing dead woodland animals. Really, you have to put aside your humanness and see things from a mouse perspective. 
I love birds, so suing a slang's hawk is a bit sad. But in context, it's a great victory won over a terrible mouse-eating monster. It's a fascinating twist of perspective that really adds to the art of the thing. And it goes into what I appreciate most about fantasy done right. The dropping of our values and asking, who would these people value? A Germanic barbarian, for example, may find qualms with men wearing sleeveless shirts. For the Roman historian Tacitus says, sleeveless shirts, yeah, sleeveless shirts are what Germanic women wear. Likewise, a medieval lady would find it most romantic if her husband, having fallen in battle far away, instructed his knights to cut out his heart and send it back to her. And going into Mao's perspective, there is an undercurrent of death as a theme throughout the series. It's based on mice who live short and brutish lives in our world and in this fantasy world. Mouse culture isn't delved into too deeply. There's mice in religious clothing, so I assume there's some sort of faith amongst them. Mouse politics also aren't explored. What is known is that mice do not have a king because that's one of the series villain's goals. In that sense, it's not a very medieval setting because as a rule, the medievals believed reality and all creation hinged on God as king of the universe, with human kings being his servants and then the chain of command filtered down to you and continued through you down to your vassals, if God entrusted you with such things. The only leadership we see, other than Kenzie as sergeant or squad leader, is a mouse with a very Celtic name of Gwendolyn. She is the commander of the mouse guard, and Rand, who is her second in command. With this, mouse guard's setting is made more ancient. It seems, to me, to be sociologically pre-Celtic British, as much as we can piece together from that long lost time. Think 6000 to 1500 BC. These were people who knew a thing or two about agriculture and farming and developed a civilization that was matriarchal, ruled by women, and obviously subsisted on farming. These are the guys that built Stonehenge. Most of their history is lost, as they were conquered by the Celts, who didn't even write themselves. Most likely, they were made into a peasant or serf class. The Celts mythicized this conquest in Irish mythology, which is where Celtic myths in general survive by the hands of St. Patrick and his boys, who could write. It seems that the conquered old Europeans became the Irish gods and fairies. Power works in odd ways, and Celtic mythology really explores that. In the tale, the old Europeans are powerful magicians called the Tua di Danan, or the folk of the goddess Danu. They unwisely start a blood feud with a group of people called the Milesians, who live in what are now Spain. The Milesians are what you now today call Gales, so if you're Irish, Scottish, or Manx, this is you. Put it on your Facebook, New Ethnicity. The Milesians thunder across the sea and meet the Tua, the Tua, the Irish pronunciations are a little weird, it's Tua, but it's spelled T-U-A-T-H-A. Anyways, the Milesians thunder across the sea and meet the Tua in battle on the coast of Ireland. The Tua sends storms to sink their boats, but the Milesians have a more powerful wizard called Amrigen, who defeats the storms and eventually the assembled armies of the Tua. However, they turn off the fertility of Ireland's soils and hold the Milesians hostage without food until they come to terms. They divide Ireland, Milesians get Ireland above ground, and the Tua get Ireland below ground. Here we have it all. Matriarchal leadership in the goddess Danu, conquest by a more martial culture, and bargaining with the soil. One can extrapolate that it's a metaphor for being able to grow food and using that as a bargaining chip while still being a conquered people.
or magic is real and this is literal history. God does seem to talk about magic like it's real. Anyways, later Arthurian stories have a body of tales that feature a human knight who goes to the other world and finds a lady under siege from her enemies. He takes up the lady's cause, serving as her guardian. This is possibly a reflection of older cultural norms of a female leader and a male fighter that endured into Celtic times, or at least into the substrate of Celtic mythology. This dynamic, to me, seems to be the political scene of Mouseguard. Maybe I should ask David if he it is so, and if he read Joseph Campbell's The Romance of the Grail, where I got this learning from. The mice themselves function very much like the fairies of Irish culture, building cities underground or in tree stumps and the like. The undertones are there beneath it all. All in all, Mouseguard is a grand series, a bubbling stew of interesting things and enduring art. I highly recommend it. And now, as I wrap it up, I'm going to introduce a new weekly thing, a medieval beast of the week. If you know the Middle Ages, you know that religious thought dominated everything. God created the world as a parable that we participate in and learn from. Think of it as an extension of the idea that the relationship between man and wife is an analogy between Christ and the church. Or, more directly, an extrapolation of Solomon telling sluggards what to do what ants do. There is meaning in everything, whether it be scientific or religious, or, as reality probably is, a mix of both. This extends to animals. Every animal has a lesson to teach. A popular form of medieval literature is the bestiary, which was a catalog of animals and their traits and subsequent learning associated with them. Gamers may recognize the word as a chart showing the attributes of a game's monster or other such thing. This is where that comes from. Some were directly from scriptures. Some were holdouts from Greek and Roman science, and some were just observations. Naturally, what beast is best to start with, if not the mouse? And so, here is what the ancients have to say. The mouse is a puny creature. They are born of the dampness of the soil, and their livers wax and wane with the moon. Old science, everybody. Or, modern science tomorrow. It's funky. This thought actually dates back to the Roman writer Pliny the Elder. It speaks on multiple levels to a lesson in ancient medical science, specifically an old practice known as humoralism. This practice was only dropped in the 1800s, but its goal was balance. Your body has four substances in it, called humors. They are blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. If these aren't balanced, you get sick. This is where the practice of medical bleeding comes from. You got too much blood in you. Each humor is governed by an organ. Heart does blood, the brain has phlegm, the spleen has the black bile, and the liver has yellow. Remember, mice get bigger livers during the full moon. This meant they had too much yellow bile. This would make them bad-tempered, so what the ancients are saying is that mice are grumpy during the full moon. Studies on moonlight and mouse behavior have been done, and the findings are that more moonlight makes mice duck for cover. So maybe some Roman disturbed a mouse's cover during a full moon and observed he didn't seem too happy about it. But also, there is an insane amount of children's book featuring mice and moons. Looks like we've been associating mice with the moon since at least Pliny, who died in 79 AD. Culture is a funny thing, isn't it? Well, that's what I have this week. I hope you enjoyed hearing me talk about mice and comics and comics about mice and all the tangents.
I hope you've realized by now you never know where I'm going with an episode. Neither do I, in fact. Follow me at Lionskin Podcast on Instagram. And if you are interested in my cartooning, look up Lionskin Adventures, also on Instagram. That page also features my nature photography, so click around. The cartoons are in the trees. They're little pen and ink and marker fantasy characters. Influenced a bit by Mouse Guard, I won't lie. With all that, goodbye. I believe you're going to have a great week.